Hey, welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Vohr, and I am joined. <coughs> <laughs> Sorry. listening to the CXMH podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hey, welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Vort and I am joined as always by my co-host, Dr. Holly Oxhandler. Holly, how are you doing today? Hey, Robert, I'm doing, uh, I'm, I'm doing okay today. I'm doing okay today. How are you doing? I am. Yeah, I'm doing. I'm doing all right. Here's what you know. What I've decided. I want to hear it. What have you decided? That we, as just like a collective human people, Mm -hmm. uh, can all agree that when someone says like "How are you doing?" that we under that that question is understood to be, you know, given all the circumstances. Right. You know what I mean? Because I uh, so I was uh, I was talking to someone Mm. the other day and. You know, I said, "Oh, you know how how things been?" And they said, "Oh, well, you know, I'm doing pretty well." You, well, obviously, you know, despite all the uh, everything that's happening. And I thought, you know, that clarifier has been on everything recently, and I get it. Like, you know, nobody wants to be like, "I'm doing great," but yeah. it kind of feels like we're all we get it. You know, we're all there. Yeah, yeah, I think I agree. Like that, we all know that that layer is there for sure. But I think it's nice too that. It feels like in many ways folks are cracking in terms of the automatic response of good, great, I'm great, everything's fine, perfect. Like it's nice that yeah. there's that like little bit of a crack into that authenticity and vulnerability of like, you know, I'm going to sit for a second and think about it and like give yeah. you that caveat and then give you an honest answer. Like that I have honestly appreciated a lot lately. Yeah. So that's a fair point. That's, you know what? I appreciate that. Yeah. Hey, you know, whatever I can do. Happy to help. But I do, I mean, I do feel like we've been doing pretty good in light of everything. So, and it sounds like same for y'all. Yeah. Everything is going pretty well. Um, I just finished up with clients for the day, which is nice for the week, actually. That's amazing. uh, After we finish this, I will do my best to not look at a computer screen for the foreseeable Mm -hmm. future until my meetings next week. Oh my gosh. That's right. Yeah, yesterday, I think yesterday I had maybe six six different meetings that I had a that I was sitting in that were all Zoom meetings and, you know, sometimes I'll be honest, sometimes I'll keep the camera off just so I can get a a little bit of a chance to not, you know, just to relax a little bit. Um yeah. and just not have that hyper awareness of being able to see myself and others like, you know, while still being present in the meeting, but Right. But yeah, five or six meetings yesterday, that was rough. So if yeah. you, listener, are on your computer all day right now, which many of us are, our hearts go out to you knowing that this is really hard. Someone, actually, I saw someone posted something saying that like a four four hours of Zoom should equal like an eight-hour day just because of the exhaustion. I fully support that. Yeah. Yes, me too. And, you know, and I'm trying to hold it all together and hold, well, hold both pieces together that, you know, that's been frustrating and I am holding that gratitude that, you know, I do have a job right now and that I get yeah. to be in these meetings. So you just need to start having like funny Zoom backgrounds. 
Oh man, Dude, have you seen any this? good ones? No, well, so I we haven't ha- done that. We have that. a bunch of for one uh-huh. of Brooks, uh, like the end of the year party that they did for her ministry. It was '90s themed, and so we downloaded mm. a bunch of like '90s ones where you're like sitting in the uh, Saved by the Bell diner or like, oh things my like that. Gosh! So I, I know oh. my my Zoom on my computer has like a bunch of funny ones that are like '90s themed. That's amazing. I love that. No, I'm not that fun. I have a, <laughs> I have the couch behind me and the wall. <laughs> But I've seen some folks have like, you know, pictures of beaches and like cities and yeah. Yeah. Nice backdrops, but yeah, no. But anyways, for our listeners, if you haven't had a chance, Robert is on another podcast this last week (laughs) with Megan Westra. Is that right? Yeah. The Podluck. The Podluck. That's it. It was a great episode. Theological Potluck. Yes. I love it. So if y'all get a chance, go listen to that episode. It was wonderful. So Well, thank you. Absolutely. Anyways, okay, should we shift into this week's episode? Because there's literally, yes. I mean, we don't have a smooth segue into this one, I don't think, except to just say that it was a really good and important conversation. Yeah, I think just pointing out that we don't have a smooth segue uh, works as a segue. We'll do that. So why don't you tell us a little bit about this? episode. Yeah, so we got the chance to talk with Dr. Daryl Tongren and Sarah Showalter Tongren, and they are the authors of a new book called The Courage to Suffer, A New Clinical Framework for Life's Greatest Crises. And it's, I mean, I, I know it says clinical framework, but it really is just this really beautiful way of thinking about when people are suffering, how they move through that and how we can kind of come alongside them without needing to like solve it because a lot of suffering cannot be solved, right? It's not just like, oh, just fix this. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. they weave their own personal story into it and talk about it from like a very human level of just how do we navigate this ourselves and with each other as friends or as therapists or pastors or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And so I thought they, I thought they were awesome. Yeah. No, I agree. I thought this was really relevant for anyone, honestly, really for anyone, because we are all coming alongside someone else when it comes to sitting with and loving someone through various forms of suffering and including ourselves and being able to be with, you know, even ourselves through suffering. And I just, I think their framework, the breakdown of the different phases that they talk about and the ability to translate it both across clinical areas as well as, you know, just everyday life. I just thought it was really good. And it was just so fun to connect with Daryl and Sarah. Like they were so, they were such great guests on the show. Yeah. We talk about wrestling with existential questions such as we all are doing right now in the midst of this pandemic. Mm -hmm. I uh, have a stuffy nose and we recorded on early Monday morning, but I tried to sing some Frozen 2. Oh my gosh, that's right. (laughs) There's a lot. There's a lot of good stuff in here. So stay tuned for that one, y'all. <laughs> I awesome. I just edited that part, and I had like this big long internal debate about cutting it out or like mapping the actual song over my voice so that you couldn't hear me. And I, you know, I don't know. I'm so glad you left it in. And now that we're recording this, this means that you have to leave it in. So. Well, what I mean, I think Daryl said, "No, no, you have to leave it in," and he's the guest. So I. Yep. Think, well, so we got to right. honor that. That's right. That's awesome. Yeah. Enjoy, y'all. 
Hey, so today we are so excited to have Dr. Daryl Van Tongren and Sarah Showalter Van Tongren on the show with us. Daryl is an associate professor of psychology at Hope College in Holland, Michigan, and Sarah is a psychotherapist who owns a private practice in Holland, Michigan. They're the authors of the new book, The Courage to Suffer, A New Clinical Framework for Life's Greatest Crises. Daryl and Sarah, how are y'all doing today? Great. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. We've been saying we're doing like new okay. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's that. awesome. I appreciate y'all coming on. Uh, obviously, those were kind of short little snippet bios. Is there anything else that our audience should know about y'all? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. There's probably a lot to know about us. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm trying to think. We have a cat who's named is Patterson. He may join us for the podcast for a little bit. <laughs> you know, this, uh, this project, this book, The Courage to Suffer, so this book project that we took together is really kind of a, a the sweet spot of both of our professional both of our professional focuses. So I study the psychology of religion and how people find meaning uh, and I've done a little bit of work about how people make meaning following adversity like disasters. Hmm. And Sarah has really a large part of her clinical practice really has been with people who are in these enduring states of suffering. Yeah, so I I have a pretty I mean I think that's the truth of most social workers. Mm-hmm. Most of the people we encounter have been suffering in some capacity, but my experience has been in foster care, interpartner, uh, domestic violence shelters. I've worked in long-term uh, hospitalizations, anywhere from acute care, uh, outpatients to inpatient, and then now in private practice. So anyone that has had a long-term medical condition to people that are suffering in relationships. So it is an interesting thing that our professional careers, we were studying these things at the same time that we were also experiencing personal suffering. And so it really is, we wrote the book out of that place, out of the place of a professional as well as personal, personal place. Yeah. And you can definitely, I mean, you can tell that as you read it, right? That all of those are infused really in this kind of beautiful way of your story and Mm -hmm. then backing it up with all this research and and all that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what we were hoping. We hope that the readers can connect. Again, I I do think it is one thing to like study and research things and then it's another thing to live them. (laughs) Yes, yes, (laughs) absolutely. Um, So Mm -hmm. I think it was just, I think the honest truth is in some ways we wish we didn't have to write the book, but it sort of was born out of that. I would have much rather written a book on like wealth management or, you know, what to do with extra money. (laughs) How to invest your third million. That's exactly right. Yes, That would have been a great book. Yes. No, that's good. Well, y'all, y'all do start hinting a little bit there at, you know, how your story is infused within this book. Can y'all, do y'all mind, you know, to the degree to which you feel comfortable unpacking your story and kind of what led you to write this book? Oh, sure. Uh, Yeah, more than happy to. So I was a, if we kind of go back 10 years, I was a PhD student. A lot of my work was focusing on how people find meaning in life how people wrestle with these deep existential questions like the realization that we're all going to die. And as Sarah alluded to, you know, this is very heady, abstract, academic, uh, which is exactly kind of as it should be. It's, you know, the exact type of thing that PhD students uh, love to wrestle with. Mm -hmm. 
And I got a phone call that my brother was going into a surgery. Now, seven years prior, he had had this emergency surgery because of this very rare genetic heart condition. And seven years prior, he had we, we did not expect him to survive. And miraculously, he survived. So he, he beat the odds. You know, there was like a 5% chance of survival and he survived. And so 10 years ago, he called me up and he said, hey, you know, I have to have the second surgery. It's a follow-up surgery, but don't worry. This one is, is much more routine. And in fact, the odds are like 95% chance that things will be fine. So it's almost like the reverse odds. So it's like, oh, it's great. No problem. I flew out there, spent a couple, you know, spent a week with him prior to him having the surgery, flew home. And then when he had his surgery, uh, we knew pretty quick that things things didn't go well. Um, and I flew out there and Sarah joined me a few hours later. And it was a three-week struggle of um, really just kind of losing my brother one day at a time. And he passed away three weeks later and, mm-hmm. and really left his wife with three children under the age of six. So a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and a nine-month-old. And that, I mean, that was such a defining moment in so many ways. Just the this, the grief, the loss, um, the shattering of assumptions that I had about the way the world worked, about the way that I thought God was. I mean, it, it really, it really sent me into uh, an existential crisis, a crisis of faith. Mm. Um, concurrently with this, uh, Sarah and I were just starting to try to start a family. And because of the genetic nature of what happened with my brother, they told us, you know, Daryl, this, this could be you. And they kind of looked at Sarah and said, and Sarah, you, you know, you could be the one kind of in Tim's wife's situation. And so they told us, stop, put a pause on that. Years later, we finally got the green light to start trying to have kids, only to find out that we couldn't. And so it was like one loss after another. Mm-hmm. And so out of all of this, you know, we were still kind of reeling from all of this when the opportunity came to write this book and to really reflect on the ways in which what we thought psychology and therapy had to offer us and all that we knew about the research, it just wasn't fitting. It just wasn't actually mapping on to how we experienced this. And we felt like there was something else that that we could offer, something else that could fill the gap. Yeah. And we were like, I think in my you know, I was still seeing clients. Daryl was at that point, maybe a, yeah, a tenured professor. So like in the process of like our own career, you know, we're, we're still interacting with other humans too that are, that are suffering. And I think what it, it did mm-hmm. for me is it made me think, wow, all these things that I've been doing as a therapist, like it made me feel real good, but I, I don't know how, I hope it was helpful in some ways, but I, I do think, you know, when someone looks at you, I mean, I work with some some terminally ill clients and they look at you and they're wrestling with that their life is finite very close in years or months. You know, I think some of the traditional kind of modalities like cognitive behavioral therapy, like what are mm-hmm. your cognitive distortions? Actually yeah. like people in those situations are nothing but clear. Like <laughs> they are clear. Yeah. And so realizing that some of these more traditional, maybe disease focused models were not helpful and so even in our own process of seeking therapy, like there was just a lot of times where I, I felt like different therapists really struggled at how to even sit with us in our suffering um, without trying to fix it. Because like you just can't yeah. fix this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's obviously true of clinical approaches, but then even just as humans, right, for people right. that are listening that are 
faith leaders or friends or family, right? Like how do we sit with people without saying, okay, how do I fix this when there's so many things that can't be fixed, you know? Like I think about that all the time when I get off with a client and I think, what what do I do if, yeah, it just sucks, you know? Like what what do I do with that? Uh, Because maybe there's no way to actually quote unquote what we think of as helping. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, in those early times, anyone who's experienced grief, I mean, kind of knows this. In those really early times, I know in my head that people are being kind-hearted and have good intentions, but sometimes um, the things that they say can be the least helpful. And oftentimes what we find is people are saying things that they think are going to be helpful, but it's in part because they're just trying to reaffirm what they they believe. Maybe not something that would be Mm -hmm. potentially helpful for you. One of the things that I found the most helpful was one of my my good friends, one of my collaborators, his name is Donnie, and he's experienced loss in his own life. Right after my brother died, he said, hey, I'm taking you to Chipotle. And we just hung out and he just sat with me and there was just a practical presence of him saying, I don't really think there's anything I can say, but I just want you to know that I'm here. Yeah. And here's a burrito. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes, <laughs> And sometimes that is that practical presence of just knowing you're not alone in your suffering goes so much further than trying to come up with something witty or clever or theologically inspired to help the suffering just somehow go away. Right. Cause I actually found yeah. the places where the like, places I struggled the most was like in my own personal therapy, but then also in congregations and in churches. Um, and sometimes it was a refuge. And then sometimes it was just, you know, when the congregation is shouting, you know, God is good all the time, all the time. God is yeah. good. I'm like, what? <laughs> like, I don't know if that is true. And then yeah. all of a sudden I have these like major theological crises of uh, existential reality. And so it's just, it was an interesting process of how very much, at least for my process, but I, I observe this to be true with my clients, that the theological crisis and the uh, psychological crisis in times of existential suffering are very much connected. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's really good. That's good. Yeah. So I think right up front, it might be helpful to get kind of some shared language, right? Can you explain kind of what y'all mean when you're talking about suffering as opposed to pain or hardship or, I mean, like kind of all those words that we use? How are y'all kind of defining those? Sure. So suffering, we define as anything that is persistent and indelibly changes people. So it could be something like like a death that really you can't fix. It, it's going to change you. It's persistent. And there's no answer for it. Like that's like there's no fixing it. Mm. And with and with suffering, we think that what it does is it reveals some of the existential realities that every human faces, and and that's part of what makes suffering so challenging. And so when we, we keep talking about this word existential, so we'll just kind of get it out on the table real fast. The, the existential realities that every human faces are first that what we call groundlessness, that we don't have control over our life, but we still have to make a decision in the midst of that. And that's okay. pretty terrifying. The second is that we're, we're isolated. So no one really knows what it's like to be us. And as much as we can try to share experiences, there's always going to be a little bit of an unbridgeable gap between us and other people. So we're kind of fundamentally alone. The third, the third given thing that we have to navigate in life is trying to figure out our identity. What does it mean to be me? 
and how do I figure out my, my identity in a world that changes and as I take on new roles? And then the fourth, the one that people really don't like to talk about, I mean, this is the one that people run the other direction, is, is death, is human mortality, the fact that one day we're all going to die. And so what suffering does is it reveals these things to be true. And what we realize is we can't avoid them. And, and it kind of pulls back the illusion that we do have control, the illusion of perfect connectedness, the illusion of a solid identity, the illusion that we're never going to die. And it makes us deal with these and confront these existential realities. And oftentimes that can be pretty downright terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. If only there was some uh, thing happening right now where all our illusion of control has been <laughs> stripped away. <laughs> right. yeah. well, I think that's what's so fascinating about right now is, so it's so ironic. So we wrote our book for three years, poured mm. our heart and soul in it. Monday, March 9th, it was released into the wild. And on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday of oh that my gosh. week, the yep. world just changed. Yep. Um, and yeah. I... I, we both had this conversation about what's happening right now is in this world in which we've constructed to have these sort of symbols out in the world to sort of hide all of our existential fears, guard against them, protect ourselves against them. They have just been totally shredded to pieces and we're mm-hmm. all staring down at them. Yeah. So it's this interesting process and, and people, I mean, just like it's true of anything, you can... Go, it's this it's the isolation we all go through our own experience in our own way and so for some people they're reacting by protesting by some people they're reacting by sheltering in like everyone is reacting against these and so I guess maybe it was this moment for us as as we had written these books and sort of been in this existential fog for like these many years to realize wow this is the time where for many people, they're faced with this for the very first time mm-hmm. without the illusion of at least maybe one of those still being <laughs> held together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. No, that's that's true. That's good. Yeah, we've we've been talking through some of that on some of our recent episodes, but I think that the way that y'all just highlighted that is pretty on point. So <laughs> no, that's good. So y'all do have this model, though, within this book that I think is pretty beautiful in terms of identifying, you know, how we move through some of this. But I want to focus first on the fact that you you have this centerpiece of your model as being focused on cultivating meaning. And I know this can sound pretty vague, but you unpack these three main components of meaning. Do you mind explaining what those are and kind of what they mean? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Meaning seems like a really like an out there term, but we, uh, there's kind of three components that people can really get their hands around. And I want to be, we want to clarify too, we're not talking about the meaning of life, like the big mm-hmm. question, mm-hmm. what's the meaning yeah. of life? We're talking right, about right. The meaning in life, like the meaning we get day to day that it, of this existence that we have. Mm-hmm. Right. Good. So, Good. Thank yeah. you for clarifying that. Yeah. So, so for, for listeners who are hoping we're going to solve that, you can tune away now. We can't, we can't give you that. <laughs> <laughs> or don't. Or stick yeah, around. Yeah, yeah. 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 Wait till the end. Yeah. We'll mm-hmm. do a coupon code. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the, the first dimension of meaning is what's called coherence. So this is when you when things make sense. So um, after tragedy, sometimes a lot of people go into what's called meaning making because they try to make sense of the tragedy. So when people can make sense of things, life feels pretty meaningful. 
The second dimension is what is called significance. So when I feel like I'm a person of worth, when I feel like I have value, when I feel loved, life feels pretty meaningful. And then the third is purpose. So if I feel like I have a direction, some place that I'm heading, some intention with my time, with my energy, with my effort, that intention makes life feel pretty meaningful. So it's, it's coherence, significance, and purpose. Okay, so coherence, significance, and purpose. And coherence being, does this make sense, right? Significance right. being, do I matter? And purpose kind of rooting with this, why am I here, correct? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, so, and so something even like our current situation with the pandemic, that also is eroding, right? So it's mm-hmm. like, what is my purpose? I can't work anymore or I don't have a job. So like oftentimes what happens is we answer these three things without even knowing we're doing it, right? So these are almost mm-hmm. like implicit ways of being as humans. And so what often happens is it's, I often say to my clients, you know, we don't walk around sort of with this awareness that we, that those are ways that we make meaning. We just sort of do. And so it's like, you don't walk around thinking about you, that you have a head until you have a headache. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, dang, my head hurts so bad. (laughs) And so then you're very acutely aware that you have a head and it is aching. And so the same with those three, those, you know, significance, coherence, and purpose, we don't realize that we have answers for those until often that we don't. Yeah, no, that totally mm-hmm. makes sense. And I and I agree that we're probably yeah. all wrestling with each of these questions on a daily basis, I think, maybe not extensively every day, but at some point they may be popping up, at least one of them, um, through this pandemic. So yeah. Yeah. So this framework kind of to do like a quick overview, right? We have like sunset, dusk, midnight, dawn, and daylight. And I thought right up front, I would kind of just say my basic questions for each one of these, because I think we can kind of go through them as in depth as y'all want to. But my basic questions for each one is kind of like, what does this phase look like? What did it look like for y'all if you want to share that? And then some tips for someone who's either going through it themselves or for helping someone else go through it, whether that's you know a therapist or a friend or a pastor or whatever, right? Does that seem like that yeah. works? I know we don't have to touch on all no, of those for each one. No, that's totally fine. We'll, we'll try to give you the 10,000 foot view while, while also kind of giving you a peek behind our experience. Perfect. Yeah. Sunset is kind of when suffering first stings, and it's the, the the realization that okay, life has changed. And for us, for example, with, with the example of my brother, it was oh, oh, Tim's not here anymore. And what happens in this initial sting is the beliefs that you had and that had been operating are suddenly found not to be useful or true anymore. And it's those beliefs, again, like we were sort of saying earlier, that you may not even know you had, right? Like, so it's this, mm-hmm. like, almost from this, you, you take in this implicit thing, and then explicitly something has happened, like the death of Daryl's brother. And I didn't realize that I believed that everything happened for a reason, right? Like, so it's like, mm-hmm. well, if I believe everything happened for a reason, and Tim died, then, oh my God, what's the reason? I have to figure out this reason. And then it very quickly led to a, like a, a very dark rabbit hole for me of realizing, mm. oh, now what do I do with this belief if I don't believe it to be true? But for the longest time, I was searching for the answer for that. Yeah. I will say there's a part in this chapter where you talk about 
the worldview beliefs and things like that that I actually wrote over on the side the phrase spiritual bypassing yeah. because mm-hmm. we did an episode yeah. a little while back on spiritual bypassing and these kind of answers that people give each other that kind of go right past your pain and try and give like a reason for it or like a nice mm-hmm. tidy solution without addressing it and so I thought that was write up what we've talked about before and something that's really important. Well, yeah. Robert, absolutely. Yeah. And, and what, what breaks my heart about that is, uh, again, I'm not a theologian. I don't even play one on TV, but there's there's probably a lot of deep wisdom in a lot of kind of these spiritual teachings. But when you do engage in that spiritual bypassing and you don't sit in the pain, mm-hmm. it just it just guts that whole experience. And in fact, yeah. it, it cheapens it so much that it probably makes that version of spirituality just distasteful and so like when people be like oh well god needed another angel it's like no i don't think god did need another angel and in fact that view of god is pretty uh is selfish yeah it's, it's pretty mm-hmm. yeah it doesn't really fit right now and isn't very helpful right now so yeah. i i love that yeah. you brought up the spiritual yeah. bypassing that's a beautiful language for that i think it is absolutely true i think that's why that was at a time of I didn't even realize it. Like I was saying, I didn't know these are beliefs that I held. And honestly, probably even explicitly would have been like, no, that's not true. And these are the theological reasons. But like when you're, you've like, somehow I've bought into that. And then all of a sudden I'm sitting, you know, in a church that realizing, oh, everyone else is buying into this and feeling so alone. Mm. Um, And even like, I remember Daryl and I took a, after Daryl's brother died, we went on like a vacation and by the vacation it means we just like we're lumps by a pool drinking margaritas like that's what we did <laughs> and I don't think we even moved like that's what we did and um I remember driving back and just asking Daryl like almost like obsessively like is God good like is God good I don't know if God is good. Like it just like it shattered me and shook me. And so there's like the other thing that happens when you're sort of like you're going, you're sort of at the sting of suffering is you're sort of like not only reeling from the pain, but you're also reeling from these things that the pain exposed. So it's like two two levels of pain. Yeah. And, and I was going to say, if, if there are faith leaders that are listening to this and you're thinking of how can we help those in our in our lives, in our communities who are stinging from suffering, I would say make a space for people to be hurting. Make a space for people to hold their pain. The church is really good at like these stories of conquering. Like they're really good at testimonials where it's like, I was bad, but now I'm fine. And I think that we could do a really good job of saying, I'm still in the midst of the doubt, of the question, of the pain, and create a space for that pain that allows us to be like, yeah, that's just painful. And just to be able to, to right. hold one another in that. Right. Like, I, I do remember even personally, like, um, at one church we were going to, like, you know, my name is Sarah. Sarah in the Bible struggled to get pregnant and often, you know, those are the sermons are like, you know, but her faith in her faith, God gave her a child. And I just remember being mm. like, well, does that mean I don't have faith? Right. Like, I, I know I don't yeah. believe that, but like, is that what I'm being told? Right. So for congregations, for spaces to be able to say like, you know, like the, this, the Bible is full of stories of conquer, like of conquering. But, you know, there are lots of things that we also in this life, we, we don't conquer. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's people that are in the process that they're, they're not conquering. And so that was really personally, I mean, again, it exposed 
exposed it in, in that sting of suffering. Sting of suffering is, I'd say, the most, um, it's a pivotal moment. It's jarring. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then you have this, you have this, I don't want to call it an opportunity. You, you could go into the darkness, right? Yes. Or someone's suffering drags you into the darkness. Some people don't. Like some people right. will do the spiritual bypassing as you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And we'll just say, well, this was the day that, you know, he was always supposed to die or this, everything happens for a reason and just sort of move through it, but not really, they'll sort of skirt around it. Right. And so we're sort of, again, if, if your listeners can take one thing, there is so much to be learned. Again, I would trade all of the struggles that I have gone through personally. So I wouldn't need to learn these lessons, (laughs) (laughs) but um, I'm also very grateful. I've been really thinking about this lately for the grace that I learned of through these lessons. I don't, I wish I didn't Mm. have to learn them. And at the same time, I'm very grateful of all the things I I have learned. So it's, it's the both and of that Mm -hmm. too. So, so yeah. sometimes suffering pulls you into that next, what we would call into the darkness. Have y'all, have y'all seen Frozen 2? Have you watched no. it? No. Mm-hmm. no. Oh, that's such like a left turn I know. But every time I read this, so like the core, like big anthem from that is called Into the Unknown. And every time I flipped through or like took notes on this chapter, I kept thinking Into the Unknown. Yes, perfect. <laughs> yes. That's awesome. It's actually, yeah. yeah no way I don't edit that. No. Please keep it, Robert. Yeah, you got to keep that. That's, That's so good. awesome. That's awesome. Maybe that could be the, in, you know, anytime we say these things, you have that playing in the background right. or something. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Just... Oh, that's amazing. That's awesome. I love it. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Into the darkness. Yeah, so sometimes suffering pulls you into the darkness. You know, like Sarah said, not everybody not everybody wants to do this. Sometimes people want to, at the first hint of Good Friday, skip right to Easter Sunday. But there is something about waiting in that darkness of that Easter Saturday. And the the core piece of Into the Darkness of, of this dusk is acceptance. And that's just making a friend with reality. That's just coming to terms with the suffering in your life and actually accepting it. And I'll, I'll say this. That isn't necessarily always, or maybe I should say it's very rarely a happy process. Like, that acceptance of the reality is often where grief just lives in abundance. So I will never forget the moment of like realizing I will never have a biological child. That is really, there, there was mourning. Um, and it isn't something that, you know, like and now I'm better. I, I still mourn that. Like that doesn't, you know, these, these processes have lingering effects but that's a part of the acceptance of it because then it sort of begins the work of, of into into the to the next process of of deconstructing what I thought. So the deconstruction process that occurs at midnight. So it's this acceptance that leads into this grief of I will never be a mother. This is really dark, and and in the darkness, darkness is disorienting. Hmm. And so, so part of this deconstruction process is taking all the beliefs you thought you you were kind of holding on to and really examining them. And you want to talk about just sheer unmitigated terror, right? If you're really questioning all your beliefs, like, does God exist? Is God good? How does the world work? Is the world fair? If you're really honestly, without a safety net of like chatting with your friends where you're like, oh, maybe God's real or not, but actually really wrestling with that reality that's tough Mm -hmm. that's really tough there were many sleepless nights i would say 
felt like for years, you know, like of those, Mm. those deep, deep, deep questions that again, for spiritual leaders, for therapists, for any, for friends, that's the thing I, I would really encourage is the space for that. Because I think the other thing is, I will say this uh, prior to my to my personal story of struggle and pain, I I think I would, as a younger therapist, would want to rush my clients through this because that's often where that guttural grief exists, where that the wailing, the the mourning, the longing, the it, it's really in some ways unsettling to people that aren't in that moment. And it does. I mean, we, we say this in our book, it takes courage to sit with someone in mm-hmm. that moment. Yeah. And, and, and it is disorienting, even for the person that's not, not in the suffering. Mm-hmm. And so I guess I would, I would encourage maybe all people to, to allow space for your friends, for your congregants, for your clients to sit in the darkness, trusting that that's a part of their process too. Right. And it, and it's so hard if you have a horse in the race, right? Yeah. Like if you're, if you're a faith leader mm. and you're like, well, I do want you to question, but I actually but want God you to. God does exist. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I want you to end up with me. It's really tough to sit back and trust that process and say, I can't give you an answer that would cheapen this experience. And in fact, you'd probably reject it down the line. I have to allow you to go through and work this out on your own. Oh yeah, that's really good. Yeah. Oh, I was saying I was I was trying to flip through and find it. I can't find the exact page, but I know y'all talk some about how this can this deconstruction and this darkness, right, kind of slip into like a hopelessness or a cynicism of like, okay, the world didn't work how I thought it worked, and therefore nothing really matters, right? right? Like that type of <laughs> right. And I think yes, that to be like nihilistic. It's very hard for people to sit with. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. For me to sit with you and say well, maybe let's keep exploring is very hard because that feels kind of like a threat to me. Mm-hmm. So I think often we kind of think like, no, no, let me show you or like argue why that's not true, right? right. But you have to kind of go through it on your own. Right. Right? You I'll, can't just I'll be like, say this too, out like humans are such natural meaning makers. And so even for people that are therapists and people that are pastors and friends, like even trusting that for most people, they don't stick there. Totally. Yes. Yeah. I was going to say nihilism is a layover. It's very rarely the destination. That's a good way of saying it. So even for people who are going through it or counselors or pastors, just give space, trust the process. Not m- Most people don't end there. Some people do. Yeah. Some, some people do. They're mm-hmm. really great yeah. friends, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> They're good to have over for dinner. <laughs> yeah. But most people yeah. don't hang out there. Yeah. Eventually, you will see shreds of light. Dawn will come, and what happens is you start rebuilding, you start reconstructing those beliefs, and we did. And and w- w- through the reconstruction process, it's like rebuilding a house, but with much stronger material, and kind of really knowing what has held up to life and what you think will weather the storm in the future. And so this this process of dawn and reconstruction is: what are the beliefs that are holding? And and there's a there's a sense of autonomy of being able to say this is what I choose this is what I choose this is kind of what I I'm actively deciding uh, makes sense and fits with my values. And I'll say this on a personal note for us, and I think this is very interesting about when we can go back to that existential fear of isolation. We all see the things from our own perspective. Daryl and I had a very different process when it came to reconstruction. Um, Hmm. my, my process, uh, I was able 
I think this is a personality thing for sure. And probably also mm-hmm. what I get to do for a living, which is the best part is, you know, my client suffering reminds me of my suffering. And so part of my active therapeutic process is to acknowledge that within myself and then to tend to that outside of the clinical hour and to process it with my own supervisor and my own, my own therapist. Right. And so being able to, for me, I looked at the darkness, I sat in it, I wallowed in it. And what I saw myself doing is clawing myself out of it, not in a way that was like, and I conquered it, but more of saying like, I see this Mm. now and I cannot unsee it. And so where do I go from there? Where Daryl, I mean, I'll let you speak to more of your own experience with reconstruction. It was this more of a slower process. Yeah, I think I think it uh, took me longer to make some of those uh, shifts. I think I was, to be honest, I was quite afraid to question some of these things. You know, these are these are core parts of how I see the world, and it was it took me a while to get to the place of uh, really pushing in and reconstructing. Like sometimes I could I would glance and I would question, but it's really hard to kind of change some of those. So for me, it was, it was a longer process coming. It was, yeah, it just took me much longer. And so that's also okay. If you're on a different time frame from other people, even if you're going through a similar thing, it can be quite different. Yeah. And so I think the most important thing at yeah. that stage is just allowing yourself the curiosity to experience those questions or those beliefs. So like for me, it was looking at that belief of like, does everything really happen for a reason? you know, and then me deciding, okay, what do I do with that? Do I keep it? Do I recycle it? Do I throw it away? Right? Like those are, those are sort of some Mm -hmm. of the the choices and, or even, you know, like, is God good? Keep it, recycle it, throw away. Ultimately I had, I, I let that one go. I actually said like, I don't actually have the answer to that one. I want to believe God is good, but I just, I cannot reconcile looking at my nephew who is nine months old, who's experienced more suffering in his nine months than I will in my 27 years like that, that to me is so hard to reconcile. And so I, it ended up being like, I'm going to let that go and I have to trust. And, and for a while, even in my reconstruction process, I even let go the idea of God for, for a bit of time. And that was so disorienting that then I, I also, what happens in reconstruction is you'll see communities might change. And so here I was, I was an elder at a church, you know, (laughs) I like, I don't know if God exists. Um, knowing that if I were to tell my secret, I would be excommunicated. Um, so trying to figure, trying to work through that is, is often very lonely and isolating. And so I was, I'm very, I was very grateful that I often had really close friends that I just continued to ask these questions and they allowed me the space um, and then I found my the space even outside of that with lots of books were my companions and reading and questioning and, you know, f- finding even space in more of the contemplative practices of Christianity. Um, mm-hmm. And even going back to basics, like for me, I think a lot of it, I found reconstruction is dope. And I had a sabbatical and we went uh, to New Zealand and we were just hiking in nature for five days and I had this moment of realization of like, oh, I actually don't have a problem with God. I think I have a problem with how people view God and what I've been told about Mm. God. And that just like blew up in the most beautiful way, this beginning processes of reconstruction that I didn't even, I didn't even know was, was that I needed, right? It was very organic for me in that Mm -hmm. process. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I think you're speaking to uh, part of why some of this process can be so painful, right, is because there's so many layers. So like you're saying, if I do deconstruct and reconstruct like kind of openly, Mm -hmm. 
what are the ripple impacts of that, right? Like, does that change my community? Do I get kicked out? Or do my friends stop calling, right? right? Like all these mm-hmm. things that make it this whole, you yeah. know, do my, massive... do my parents disown me, right? Like those, <laughs> right? Yeah. like, you know, I, these communities that we built, right? That, that, you know, I, I think that's the, the thing that it, it's difficult when these more of like rigid communities, um, are they allowing space for those, those questioning those through the process that in the darkness, in the deconstruction, in the reconstruction parts of, of life. Yeah, no, that's really good. I appreciate how y'all unpacked that reconstruction process for the both of you. That's really good. And I do, I want to mention real quick, I know for lots of us, we tend to use deconstruction and reconstruction kind of exclusively for theology, mm-hmm. but this, the way you write about it also applies to kind of just how you understand the world to work, right? right. So if you kind of think good things happen to good people, right. maybe there's a theological slant on that and maybe there's not, but all of a sudden something massive happens in your life and you think, okay, then either I'm a bad person or that that framework doesn't hold up, right? So right. it can it can apply to like, all sorts mm-hmm. of things, oh, right. kind of just fundamental core beliefs. Oh, even like work, even like working models for relationships. Like, are other people good or bad? Are other people trustworthy or untrustworthy? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, it can it can change all of those fundamental uh, mm-hmm. assumptions. Finally, you you hopefully do get to daylight, <laughs> uh, where you kind of start living in an authentic way in which your your newly constructed values and behaviors match. And there's this there's this congruence of kind of finding a way in which you can understand the world and you can understand your relation to the world in a way that honors your suffering. And so there, there's a sense of authenticity. And the goal here is to, is to kind of build a sense of resilience, what we call existential resilience, for future suffering. So kind of understanding that these existential realities really aren't these fears that we should be terrified of. They're just kind of facts of life, right? Like, it's actually true that we can't control things. It's it's true that we're, we're we kind of have our own individualized experience that we have to figure out our identity that death will come to us, but those don't have to be things that are inherently threats. They can just be reminders that if we're all going to die, it just means that there's a finite amount of time in this life that we should be actively and authentically living meaningfully. Right? If if life kind of has an expiration date, it really puts the impetus on now to make sure you're using the most of this time. Well, and I was going to say mm. even part of the process of making like great coherence, significance, purpose. Sometimes the, for me at least, and I think this is true for people that have walked through this process is the coherence then becomes that, you know what, there might not be as much coherence as I think there is. And I know that that seems sort of strange that that is a coherence, <laughs> but in some ways it is right. So being able to sit with it, that, that coherence isn't always um, A plus B equals C, but maybe it's two plus B equals the sound of a cat or something. Like it's something that's different, mm. different um, maybe equation altogether. Kind of like making the sense of your suffering by saying that some suffering is just senseless. Yeah. Mm, that's good. Yeah. Oh man, that's really good. Well, one question that we often like to ask our guests, especially those who have done a tremendous amount of research or they've written a book or they've just, they've poured their heart and soul into this work that they've done. And so what we would love to hear from you is what is your hope for this book as it is launched out into the world? And especially perhaps in the midst of this particular season. Wow. Yeah. The hope for the book, I would say for me is that it would allow people the opportunity to have conversations about suffering 
that are destigmatized and can give them the space to hold both suffering and meaning together. And it allows them to understand that a full life is not one that either is suffering or isn't, but we can suffer and we can flourish together. Yeah, I was going to say, I want to destigmatize suffering as well. Um, you know, there's that quote out there that I really do love. Like, I am trained in DBT, and so mindfulness is a part of that practice. And everyone, ex- it's, it goes like this everyone experiences pain. Uh, but not everyone has to experience suffering, right? Pain is, mm. or suffering is is pain without acceptance. And I think that is somewhat true, but also not. <laughs> um, mm. I can accept the fact that I'm going to be a mother, but it's uh, it still hurts. And it's, yeah. it struggles. It's a struggle every Mother's Day. Mother's Day is coming. This is, I see it in my Instagram feed. I see it in my emails. I see it all around. It's still stings and it does create suffering. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I actually think Mm. it can be, um, we just need to destigmatize it. Right. And instead of, I think, again, I think that's a beautiful quote. I think it has its place, but also, uh, things are still painful and that's okay. That doesn't mean something's wrong with me. It doesn't mean we need to pathologize pain. It doesn't mean we need to pathologize suffering. doesn't mean we need to pathologize sadness. All these things exist and that's okay. Light and darkness are together. And that's my hope with this book is the beautiful thing that I also think about with our metaphors of, you know, sort of dusk to dawn is, you know, we do live in the daylight and then, you know what, like dusk comes again and so does dawn, Mm. right? So it's, it is a cyclical process. And so I, I'd like to destigmatize suffering as well. And if I can encourage like faith leaders and therapists and people, friends, allow the space for people to suffer and, and trust, trust their process. Mm, that's mm. so good. Oh, I love all that. Yeah. Well, if you want to connect with Daryl and Sarah, you can connect with Daryl at DarylVanTongren.com, connect with Sarah at SarahVanTongren.com, or on Instagram at The Existential Therapist. You can pick up this book wherever you buy books. It is The Courage to Suffer, A New Clinical Framework for Life's Greatest Crises. You can connect with Holly at hollyoxhandler.com or on any social media at hollyoxhandler. You can connect with me at robert-vore.com or on any social media at Robert Vore. Daryl and Sarah, thank you guys so much mm. for coming on and spending some time with us today. Do you have any closing thoughts for our listeners? No, I'm just very grateful. Thanks for having us on the show. It's so great to talk with you. Yeah, thank you guys. We really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the CXMH podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMH podcast at gmail.com.